it snowballed. I was doing opioids, Xanax, or Klonopin. I was mixing cocaine in with it to try and stay up. Nathan Smitty started using and then selling drugs in high school. I knew that if I went to college, I was going to party and flunk out. I knew that getting financial aid and all that was not worth it. So I didn't go. I stayed home and I sold drugs. But after a couple of close encounters with death, Nate now finds his purpose in saving others from overdose. Does it come back to you? Lives have been saved. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How many do you think? In the last year-ish, give or take, probably 450 plus, 450 450 plus. lives. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. You're like an angel out there saving <laughs> lives. No. It's earned him the nickname of Narcan Nate. I'm Angela Kennecke, an award-winning journalist and your host of Grieving Out Loud. I started this podcast along with the charity Emily's Hope after my daughter died from fentanyl poisoning. Nate, thank you for joining me from sunny California. It looks beautiful where you are. Oh, thank you for having me. It's very beautiful. I am so excited to hear a little bit more about your story. I've seen your story on TV news stories and written about in publications, but I don't think I know all of it. And I know you're from Tennessee originally. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Tennessee. I grew up in a really small town. There was four red lights, a bunch of funeral homes, and some bars. And that's the gist of it. (laughs) A really small town. Everybody knows everybody. It used to be a very booming coal mining town. And then coal mining went away. And Appalachia was struck really hard with that. A lot of poverty. Growing up, Nate also suffered through personal trauma. At age five, his parents got a divorce. His dad started working two jobs to support the family. His mom was barely in his life. At one point, Nate didn't see her for more than a decade. I went through so much in such a little time, and there was no way for a five-year-old child to process that. I didn't have the capacity to process a lot of it, but I do think that played a part in it. Absolutely. Definitely played a part in determining my negative self-talk completely. Your dad was a cop and your brother's a cop, clearly rule followers, and you took a different path. I'm a journalist. My daughter became addicted. I think addiction can happen in any family. There is no socioeconomic or color or any kind of limitations with addiction? No, I don't believe it depends on your socioeconomic status, your race, your gender identity. I believe a multitude of those factors can play a role in it, but I don't think solely that it doesn't just depend on that. I don't think it matters where you're from, who your parents are. I don't believe any of that matters when it comes to addiction. How did it happen for you? Did you start experimenting when you were a teenager? Yeah, I started drinking junior year. I got really drunk the first time. I mean, I drank a lot. And after that, it was okay. I didn't drink really at all. I would just have a few beers every now and then. Senior year, I partied very heavily. I started smoking weed. We were on the block schedule in high school, which means we had four periods for an hour and a half. But I would only go to one class, maybe two classes. And then I left school to go to work. So I had a job 
and I went to work and they paid me cash every day. So that's how I was able to buy beer and, and marijuana every day. So I partied hard. I got accepted into, into college. I got accepted into ETSU. And then I knew that if I went to college, I was going to party and flunk out. I knew that getting a financial aid and all that was not worth it. So I didn't go. I stayed home and I sold drugs is what I did. Well, I think that the younger that you starts, the more you're set up for addiction. And also the more your decisions are illogical. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Your family, were they upset with you? Did they know what was going on? No, they didn't know for a long time. As I sold drugs, my youth dwindled down, actually. I really didn't sell drugs at home. I was smarter than that. I had, like, quote-unquote respect. So I drove around all day and would make deliveries, or I would meet people someplace. But I never sold drugs at home. They never really knew for a while. But at some point, they did. Then in October of 2010, Nate tried opioids for the first time. Yeah, it was oxycodone. I had went through a breakup. And it was like my first real love, you know, the guy that I was selling drugs with, I went over to pick up and he told me to liven up, which in the South means to get in a better mood. We were selling oxycodone. One of the things we were selling, he put one on his counter, he busted it up and I snorted half of it. It was the best feeling I'd ever had in my life. And I tell people all the time, the, like the thought in my head was I need to feel this way every day for the rest of my life. That was the immediate response to it when I ingested it. Hmm. And after that, were opioids your drug of choice? Drug of choice. And then I'm going further. It snowballed. I mean, I was doing opioids and 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 uh, X or Klonopin. And then I was mixing cocaine in with it and trying to stay up. Sure. Right. Because when you take those downers, eventually you have to be awake for something, right? Yeah. So I know you overdosed twice. How come you're here talking to me? The first incident, I call it an overdose. No one has corrected me on it. I'll tell you the story. It was when Opanis came out or Oxymorphone and we were selling them. I, I had no idea what they were, but they were really expensive. And I had very little oxycodone left, but I had a lot more Opanis. And so I took one with some oxycodone, didn't feel anything really. And so I took maybe two or three more. And this was the 40s. And so oxymorphone is extended release. And I didn't know that. And it hit me all of a sudden. I collapsed in my driveway. And then I, I come back to consciousness. The last thing I remember is my uncle's fingers going into my mouth because I thought if I ate some food at some point in that time, I would sober up. And then I woke up 26 hours later. So I have no idea what happened. Sounds like an overdose to me, but yeah, so, not a fatal yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. I don't know what it is. I call it that. No one's ever corrected me on it or explained to me what happened, but that's what happened. Nate continued to struggle with his substance use disorder and again overdosed four years later. Thankfully, Narcan, administered by emergency workers and a friend, saved his life. I was at this really shady hotel and I knew one of the guys there. I didn't have the door locked and he was over there and he came by and he seen me and he called. Thank God he called. How did you find recovery? I was in the Suboxone Clinic and I had gotten robbed. Previous to this point, I was paying cash, but I got robbed. And so 
I asked my dad if he would let me use his insurance to pay for it. He just took me to treatment instead. I went through that detox and it was rough, but I did it. I stayed clean and sober for 16, 17 months and then I relapsed. And then after that, it was a couple of years of just going through it in and out of the, the rooms, 12 steps. How did your dad, the cop, react to all of this? Oh, in many different ways. He was sad. He was scared. There was a point where he cold turkeyed me on his couch. This was right after I'd overdosed the first time. And I had drugs and scales and paraphernalia just all in my truck. So he was not happy with that. I had drugs bagged out for resale. So that's automatic distribution right there. He thought he failed as a parent. Every every parent goes through this. It's like, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? What if I did this different? What if I did did they? We do. Single parent and goes through that. And I I don't personally understand it. So Um, you never blamed your parents for the fact that you found yourself suffering from substance use disorder? I don't think I blamed them. I definitely played the victim card, but I don't think I really blamed them. I I went through some trauma as a child, for sure, but I, I don't think I really ever blamed them, per se. I was mad at the world, though. I thought the world was unfair. Like, why me? And so that definitely played a part in, like, prolonging my use, for sure. Do you think it was the trauma? Trauma that made you feel that way? I think trauma plays a big part of it. I've seen people react in both ways because I went through trauma as a child too, but I never saw myself as a victim. But I've seen people go through trauma and see themselves as a victim, a victim of everybody, their circumstances, everything around them. And I don't know why some people react in that way and others don't. Well, me and my brother went through the exact same trauma and we both had different responses to it. Right. And that can happen in so many families. You have the same circumstances and one child may complete suicide. Another may be maybe an overachiever. You know, I mean, you just have very different, different perspectives in the same circumstance. Obviously, now you're in recovery. You're talking to me Mm -hmm. and you're doing these amazing things, which we're going to get into in just a moment. But what worked for you? What was it? What was the turning point? I work the 12 steps now still. It's the only thing that's ever worked for me personally. I did some EMDR therapy and then I did therapy for 18 months. I think I just realized that I just couldn't keep endeavoring in this because I feel like I had exhausted all my options. So I just got out of treatment. I quit taking my psych meds. I was on Wellbutrin and Naltrexone. It just controlled my cravings and helped with depression is all it was. But I thought I could microdose marijuana and CBD and be okay. I absolutely could not do it. I had the worst reaction to it. I wanted to kill myself. I thought about running out in front of the Amtrak for a couple of weeks. I told the guy that sponsors me now, and we kind of just went through this process. I really thought that I was either developing agoraphobia, or I thought I was going to be one of those people that would live and one day I would get sober, but I would be mentally inept, so to speak. And that scared me more than anything. Like dying sounded better than being like. Sounds horrible. So it was a 12 step that brought you out of that. I went back to meetings and I really, really internalized that I couldn't use substances anymore, really at any capacity. And I I still haven't. The only time I've done a drug in almost four years is when I had surgery and that was it. I hear this is a pitfall a lot for people who suffer from substance use disorder. They go through surgery. And in fact, I, I know a woman this happened to 
And she said, I cannot go on the on the opioids, on the painkillers. And she did. And she fell right back into it, right? Right back into mm -hmm. eventually led to heroin, eventually led to overdose. She's alive now. But I think about that. How were you able to have surgery, take the drugs for a short period of time and then not stay on them? Well, I made a plan. I told people I was having surgery. I told them my fears, my concerns. I took one benzo before I went in there and then I had surgery. I came home. It was just some, it was a mouth surgery. I had to get a bunch of work done on my teeth due to my substance use. Sure. So, and then my sponsor came over. He talked to me. I went to a meeting. I prayed about it a lot, a lot, a lot. I had surgery that day. I went to a meeting that night. I was still in and out of it, kind of nodding out. That was just it. What's your relationship like with your family today? I talk to my dad at least three to four times a week. Me and my brother are really close. I mean, there I don't think there's any quote unquote bad blood between us. I flew home and, and made amends to all of my family. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, part of the 12 steps, right? It, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mentioned that you're known as Narcan Nate. How did that start? When I first started distributing Narcan, I had to figure out a way to get it known that I was distributing Narcan. And so one of those ways was a lot of the meetings that I went to would have outside announcements. And so an outside announcement, it doesn't have to be 12-step related. It can be anything. So you can talk about a job at Domino's or you need a place to live, you're moving or whatever. And so I would talk about having Narcan and I would do it at every meeting I went to. And then eventually my friends started calling me Narcan Nate when I introduced myself. One, the first time it happened, it stuck after that. Well, it's alliteration. So yeah. why did you want to get Narcan out there? I mean, what prompted that for you? Well, my experience mm -hmm. with the first time, because my family, they didn't call 911. They really probably didn't know I was overdosing. I know they knew something was obviously wrong with it, but they had no idea how to identify one. And then, of course, being Narcan and being saved by it. And then I had an experience where I found my friend in a sober living. I found him overdosed in the bathroom. And there was a couple of us in there that were getting high again. This guy had been to prison. He was involved in a gang. So he was affiliated with people. I find him and I didn't know what to do. For one, I had always been the guy overdosing. I had never been the guy finding someone overdosing. I didn't want him to, to live and go to jail and go back to prison if that was his case. But I didn't want him to die either. I know this probably sounds really horrible to the, to the majority of people, but I did not know what the right decision was to do because I feel like either way it could go bad. And so I almost let him die. I almost left him there, which happens a lot, unfortunately. I call, he gets saved. And then as I found out about harm reduction later on, I reflected back and looked at that whole situation and everything that I know now wasn't being taught back then. There was no Narcan in the sober living. The 911 dispatcher didn't walk me through any of the process to render aid to the guy. I didn't know about the Good Samaritan law. I didn't know about any of that. And so pretty much my motivation was just so people didn't have to have my experience just because there was no need for it to happen. Right. And you have been able to distribute Narcan for what, the last four years? Going on four years, yeah. Going, going on, on four, four years. years. Yeah. How many people do you think you've given it out to? Thousands. 
How do you get it? The main source is through the state, uh, the Department of Healthcare. So it's a state source. But I have people that get it and it will expire and they'll give it to me and it's still good. So I just recycle it and that's how I get it. Or I'll know people and they'll, they get bulk quantities of it and they'll mail it to me. And Narcan should be widely available. You should be able to just go into a pharmacy and get it. But if you don't have insurance, it's expensive. It's very, very expensive. Very expensive. In fact, a new RAND Corporation study found that from 2014 to 2018, the naloxone cost for those who are not insured rose by more than 500%, jumping from just $35 to $250. How do you distribute it? How do you pass it out? Either people contact us and they schedule trainings or I'll make announcements on social media like, hey, I'm going to do a Zoom training and then you can come pick up the Narcan or I just do street outreach, just go out into the streets. Have you heard of it saving lives? Does it come back to you? Lives have been saved. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How many do you think? I want to say in the last year-ish, probably 450 plus. Probably 450 450 lives. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. You're like an angel out there saving (laughs) lives. No. You're not an angel. (laughs) No, I I don't think I'm an angel. I just think I'm someone who's just very motivated, very passionate about this. Yeah, obviously. Do you have a day job? What do you do to keep a roof Uh, over your head? When I... Got on my feet out here. I used to have to work two jobs and I did the Narcan distribution on the side. But now I just work for the nonprofit and that's my main job. And your nonprofit is? It's called A New Path. At A New Path, Nate raises awareness about the opioid epidemic and teaches people how to recognize overdoses and administer Narcan. They've been around for 23 years, but I am working on my own little project right now that it's in the works to start my own nonprofit. What's the most rewarding thing in your life right now? Definitely saving lives and seeing things change is very big. But when people reach out to me and they live in in a resource desert, kind of like we have food deserts, but they're in like a resource desert. When they reach out to me and they don't know what to do or how to locate a service and I'm able to help them find a service. So I've had people reach out to me on social media and they wanted Narcan, but they couldn't find it. And I find it for them and they'll save someone's life with it. I see you have a GoFundMe. What's that for? I want to get a van and I want to gut the van. I want to build it, like put shelves in it for supplies, whether it's wound care supplies, put waters and stuff in there and food food and snacks and have like a little place to work on people if they have wounds and stuff like that. So pretty much I, I want to have a mobile outreach van so that way I can pull up somewhere and people can come to and they can receive services and stuff and things of that nature and kind of have a safe little spot that's welcoming and it's comfortable and they know they're safe there and there's no judgment. I believe it'll happen. I believe it'll happen too. I'm just amazed at everything you've been able to do already. Even your own recovery is such an accomplishment, really. Thank you for all of the lives you've saved. Thank you. Because it just means that there are families that are not grieving right now. And there are Mm -hmm. so many families grieving right now. There, Yeah, there's a a lot. Yeah. I always say is one overdose death, one fentanyl poisoning death. There's just so much collateral damage. So thanks for all the hard work you're doing. You're very welcome. 
You can find a link to Nate's GoFundMe page and resources for battling substance use disorder on our website, emilyshope.charity. While you're there, check out more Grieving Out Loud episodes and see how you can join our efforts. Thank you for listening. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.